Hi, and welcome to the Lumita Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gilder. On this podcast, we'll explore how to achieve and plan for a long, healthy life, as well as how to prepare for the inevitable and unforeseen through estate planning, insurance, and end-of-life decisions. We'll talk candidly with experts who advise high and ultra-high net worth clients so you can learn how to apply their strategies and tactics to your own longevity and legacy planning. On this episode of the Lumita Legacy Podcast, I'm joined by Jay Berman. Jay is an incredibly experienced dietitian and nutritionist, having participated as a researcher at Stanford School of Medicine's groundbreaking studies on nutrition, having led the nutrition teams for multiple Silicon Valley startups focused on personalized nutrition and wellness, and having her own consulting business supporting high and ultra high net worth clients focus in on improving their health, wellness, and nutrition. During this episode, we talk about sound nutrition principles, how to focus on personalizing your sleep and workout schedules, and when to know when you're off course and how to get back on course. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. I know I did. So tell me what it means to have good nutrition. The first tenet of good nutrition is whole real foods. So making sure that you're everything that you're putting in your body, you know, 100%, if not close to 100%, you know where it came from. At Stanford, we used to say, if it has a mother or it came from the earth, you know, it's whole and real. So I think part of good nutrition is just acknowledging that the majority of the food you're eating is whole and real. You're not getting into all the processed stuff or additives or, you know, potentially toxins. Um, the second part of good nutrition is avoiding restriction. So, so much of what's going on in nutrition can often be eliminating something. And there may be some merit to the elimination, but what tends to happen is things get kind of, things snowball. And then all of a sudden people are following an extremely restrictive diet and cutting out things that they probably need. So I often use the word balanced plate when I tell people how to eat, right? That there's a carb, a protein, and a fat present on their plate, right? Because the body needs all of those macronutrients regularly to make sure that um, they're getting everything they need to metabolize and function properly, as well as to let the body know that it's safe, right? That it's not being put into a stressed response. But often people start pulling too many things out. Things get restrictive. The body feels stressed. And then they've kind of lost the point of... Um, fueling themselves. So there's a lot of conversation around different diets that create stress. Right. What do you think about those? And maybe could you describe what some of those are? Yeah. So um, at a really simple level, and it doesn't really need to be much more complicated than this, from my opinion, is that um, if the body thinks it's safe, it will work in your favor. It will burn fat. It will think clearly. It will um, understand its hunger cues. It will all the all the millions of reactions that are going on in the system on a second to second basis will be happening in a in a solid or in an appropriate way because the body thinks it's safe. If the body thinks it's in trouble everything will shut off, right? Your hunger cues will shut off because if you're starving in the desert, the last thing you want to think about is how hungry you are. You won't burn fat because fat's going to keep you warm on a cold winter's night. It's really hard to multitask and think about multiple things or function too clearly because all your body's thinking about is how to get out of that stressful situation. So many people are living in that stressed state because they're pulling things out of their diet. So, but on the flip side, if you've nourished yourself and are taking care of yourself properly and you add a stressor to the mix, it's a really nice challenge for the body. So for example, um, this could happen with intermittent fasting. This could happen with a cold plunge. This could happen with a, um, like an ultra exercise effort right? If your body, if you're nourishing your body and taking care of your body, and then you put your body in that stressful state, the body's like, Ooh, this is fun. Like, that's a cool challenge. I'm going to adapt and become even more resilient because 
I have that challenge in my system. If your body is fried and thinks it's in trouble, and then you put that stressor in your system, the body's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, I'm already in trouble, and now you're adding more trouble. So what I often ask people is, is it working? You know, like, if you are doing intermittent fasting, are you achieving the results you want to achieve? Are you losing weight? Is your energy better? Are you building muscle? Are you feeling all the sensations that you want to feel from that fasting diet? Or if you're using a cold plunge, are you noticing that your body's adapting in a better way? Is your sleep improving? Is your just overall anxiety cooling? Because some people start using cold plunge or sauna or, or HIIT workouts or fasting or you name it. And when you ask them, how are you doing? They're like, I don't feel well. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not losing weight. My sleep's impaired. I'm kind of in a bad mood all the time, but I feel like I have to do this. So it can be as simple as just asking yourself, like, are you, how are you feeling? And are you receiving the results of whatever you were trying to see, receive the results of? Yeah. I had that experience just yesterday. I, <laughs> I'm not a personal uh, proponent for myself of too much fasting because my body tends to need a lot of fuel and it's early to work out. And yesterday was a long cardio day. I was up at five. I had rode for an hour and then I had to go do a tour of a prospective school for one of my children. And I hadn't eaten. And at the end of the tour, I was worried I was going to pass out and they couldn't have gotten the orange juice <laughs> right. soon enough. So. Right. And, you know, we, we forget that um, just like being on and like fully showing up as a human in this intense, crazy world is effortful. Like going to a, a tour for a school where you have to ask questions to make sure that you're doing the right thing for your, for your kid. You've got to make sure that you're presenting yourself well. Cause there's the whole stressful moment maybe of like, am I going to get accepted and all the sort of stuff. There might be just emotions around, oh my gosh, my kid's going to school. I mean, there's, there's a lot to it. And to fully show up, you need to let your body know that it's safe because if you don't, you're just not at your best in those moments. And then that ripples you know, then you're hard on yourself for not being good in that meeting. Then you don't feel well. Then you, you know what I mean? And the whole thing can kind of ripple out of control. That makes a ton of sense. So why don't we yeah. rewind for a second and tell us a little bit about how you, Jay Berman, know so much about nutrition and wellness <laughs> and what have you been doing to get yourself to this place professionally uh, in education as well as career? Yep. Um, So I was not supposed to go into this field. My dad had a master plan for me to be an accountant or to take over his M&A firm. This was not at all in the picture. Um, And what happened was I studied abroad uh, my junior year to Israel, and I traveled to 10 to 15 countries that year. And um, what I noticed was just how beautiful food was abroad. <laughs> this was 98, 99. The majority of my friends um, were following the Atkins diet, which was super popular. So everyone was just starving themselves and not eating bread. And bread is like my favorite food. So that felt strange. And, you know, college, many people had disordered eating or eating disorders. Everyone was trying to get skinny. And then I went abroad and, um, boy, it was pleasant, you know, gorgeous food, beautiful dinners, all sorts of people serving us. Food was this ritual. And I just got really interested in like, wow, food could be this really pleasant and like exciting thing. And I then learned, I didn't even realize, you know, that there was this whole field of nutrition and you could go into school in nutrition and that was even a thing. And so um, after college, I switched gears and went to graduate school at Columbia for nutrition and physiology. So I always felt like nutrition and exercise go hand in hand and people tend to separate it. I had um, um, in my early twenties become a yoga instructor and a Pilates instructor. And again, everyone was so focused on the exercise but no one was talking about food or people were talking about food and they weren't talking about exercise. So my grad program really put all the pieces together of how 
nutrition and exercise work together and as well as how important they both are. The other gift I received at Columbia that I had no idea was going to happen um, was a major emphasis of Columbia is nutrition, ecology, and sustainable agriculture. So I learned a huge amount about where our food comes from, um, how food and soil are treated politically, um, and the importance of whole real foods. So that kind of became a, a, a deep driver for me coming out of school in a way that I thought it was just going to be about, you know, macros and calories and biochemistry, but it turned out to be um, also about um, how food is grown and how to take care of that in the full cycle um, in combination with the land. Um, and then I, you know, was in private practice pretty much my whole career. And um, one thing kind of led to another. And then in 2016, I was fortunate enough to work with Christopher Gardner at Stanford on the diet fit study. And the diet fit study compared low carb and low fat diets. And the reason I fell into that study was because the paleo diet was really popular. And all my clients were, again, cutting out, you know, all these foods that in grad school I had learned were really good for you. So I was just so confused. And I kind of kept interviewing people to understand more of what was going on with um, kind of new nutrition science and that led me to Christopher and Stanford. And so that was a wonderful study. The largest single site weight loss study to be done. People were randomized into two groups. One group was on a low carb, one group was on a low fat. There was no um, strict calorie level or protein level. And what was came of it was um, both groups lost weight right? Like the tagline for the study was one diet does not fit all, right? And that's true, right? Like some people lost weight on low carb, some people lost weight on low fat. It really had to do with um, deeper motivation of are you willing to create a change in your diet um, or do you not? And the people who were willing and open to create a change created change. And then um, that led me into kind of this whole world of personalized nutrition with health tech. So um, working in startups on personalized nutrition and personalized um, assessment tools and um, how to communicate the message around nutrition, exercise, sleep, clinical testing, and using technology to support how to do that in a scalable way, okay. which adds a whole other layer of complexity to it. Yes. Uh, anything personalized is hard to scale. Yeah. But tell us a little bit about then how do you understand from an assessment perspective what personalization you need to do if you're looking at your diet, your nutrition, and your sleep. Let's like those are the three pillars we'll assume for a moment. And walk us through that process of assessing where somebody's individual needs vary and how do you know that? Right. Um, I think the first step to understanding kind of what you need and where to go is a level of humility, <laughs> which not everyone really wants to, to, to uh, hear, but um, being humble to the fact that they might not know exactly what's right for them, right? If you come in like, um, I do this form of exercise and I eat this way and I know it's perfect, it's going to be really hard for you to be humble to the fact that there's other ways out there. Um, you also be, have to be humble to the fact that your data might not be great. Like you might be killing it in area one and area two, but you need some major help in these other areas. And owning that and realizing that your routine, your schedule, your lifestyle habits might need to change is a major part in just going into the level of personalization. And the reason that's important is because while the data is so helpful, and so cool, and it's only getting better, um, it can be really um, harmful to people, right? First of all, if you don't show, say you're really good at, um, you know, you're an endurance athlete, and so you've got really strong aerobic health, and um, your blood is like all optimal, right? There's no major blood issues, no major health issues, right? You're like, I'm good, you know? I can run 10 miles on a Saturday, um, but, if you're not aware of these other categories in your life that um, aren't going well, you tend to get obsessed with the data, right? And you're like, 
my HRV is really poor when I sleep and my, you know, right hip is not as strong as it should be. And um, my body fat percentage is 1.5% higher than it should be. If you can't pause and say, okay, even though my blood is healthy, thank goodness, and I'm a really great endurance athlete, there's other areas I need to work on. And I might need to adjust a lot of these different components of my schedule. The data only becomes overwhelming and becomes almost a detriment. So you, if you're going to open the, the pearly gates of personalization, right? You have to be willing to move things around, which may seem obvious, but many people don't want to do that, right? Or they think they can just add on more, right? Like mm -hmm. I've already got this full schedule. I've already got this full work life. I'm busy, 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 but I want to be even better. I'll add on these 15 more things to my routine and then it doesn't work. Or you just stress your system out. So it does take a pause and like a, am I willing to do this? And then once you get into it, asking yourself or working with someone to say, what's going well, you know, like, can I, can I do a certain level of aerobic work without becoming winded? You know, can I lift heavy things in all the different parts of my body? Right. Um, can I, um, is my weight at an appropriate level? Um, is my blood normal? Are my sleep stats like um, HRV and resting heart rate and um, just my overall quality quantity of sleep, you know, am I getting over seven hours a night? Um, when I wake up in the morning, do I feel rested? You know, am I eating foods that afterwards I feel energized, not exhausted? You know, are there times in my day where I feel totally beat? Um, is there a joint in my system that feels just terrible? You know, like am I in just chronic pain in one part of my body all the time, or I know I'm very stiff in a part of my body. So you can either work with someone to get testing, or you could just ask yourself, am I doing okay in all these different components of my, of my physical health? So to be tactical, you have to couple that. Uh, qualitative assessment, you know, like personal qualitative assessment with an attitude of humbleness. But yes. what are what are some of the tests that you do? Like, for instance, you mentioned HRV. I actually don't know what HRV means. Right, right. So HRV is um, means heart rate variability, mm -hmm. and it's a um, very cool and complicated, you know, statistical and math formula. But what it looks at is if you're parasympathetic which is your rest part of your nervous system turns on when you sleep. Mm -hmm. So if you are sleeping um, deeply, and when I say deeply, I actually don't mean deep sleep. I just mean if your body's truly resting and recovering when you sleep, your HRV will be high. If you don't sleep restfully, your HRV will drop down. So that's a great marker to look at if um, your quality of sleep, if your body's truly, you know, resting. However, the sleep data also shows that just asking yourself in the morning, do I feel rested, is sometimes as powerful as the quantitative data. Interesting. So again, people can get so stressed out by the data coming in from sleep that they, they, um, you know, I, I can't tell you the amount of clients who are like, I wake up and I feel pretty good, but, um, my data told me that I didn't get any sleep last night. So I'm feeling really hard on myself. This just happened this week, you know? So I think really reminding yourself that the data is helpful, but also checking in with yourself to see how you feel is extremely powerful too. And using them both in conjunction to make sure that you're understanding everything. So you can look at all these different components of your health. Um, and right, so there's uh, your weight and your body composition, right? That's a major player in um, the longevity and the health span game, right? Weight is a major player involved in so many components of health, as we all know. Body composition is another major part of that. And what I mean by body composition is fat versus muscle as well as what's called your visceral fat, which is that fat around your organs that can cause quite a bit of um, 
risk and, and harm metabolically because it's the fat that's closest to your organs. So, um, and you know, you want your liver and your pancreas and your, your guts, all, all of the organs that live in your core, those being surrounded by fat is not ideal, right? Because fat can lead to, um, harmful things. Um, so how do you, like, how do you get a body composition testing? So that gets tested by a DEXA scan, right? So it does require a deeper level of a testing that you would have to pay for that you can't get on a scale or even um, one of those simple scales probably doesn't even look at it. And it looks at all the different components of your, of your body composition, including your bone. Um, and so when you look at your visceral fat, you can do certain types of exercise to lower that, right? And so there's many people out there who... Um, may be thin in appearance and they may be doing some form of exercise, but they don't have any muscle on them. Mm. And muscle is key to aging, right? You know, um, I work with quite a lot of wealthy clients and we joke that, you know, muscle is as important as, you know, their net worth, right? Like they need to build that muscle mass um, to make sure that they're you know, it, it helps everything. It helps hormone health. It helps body composition. It can support that visceral fat. It can support stability in your joints. It can support those activities of daily living as you age, right? So like, might seem silly now, but when you're 80s or 90s, like walking upstairs, getting out of a chair, being able to lift up something in the kitchen, those are all really important things. So if you have the muscle now in your younger years, that will help you when you get older. Um, so assessing your body composition is great. Assessing your aerobic function is great, right? Through like a VO2 max test or a submax test, or you can do it on your own. There's different ways to assess it of just, um, you know, running up a hill and seeing if you get winded, walking up a hill and seeing if you get winded. Can you nasal breathe up a hill or do you immediately go to huffing and puffing out of your mouth at the top of the hill, mm. right? So, but you could also do a formal test. Um, muscle mass is great too, right? So you can do specific strength tests to assess how strong you are in all the key movements, right? Pulling, pushing, squatting, lunging, all these different things, or in your core, right? Doing a plank, or you can be doing a strength training workout, like working out on your own or with a trainer. And one question I ask clients all the time is, is the weight getting heavier? right? Because so many clients will just be like, yeah, I do so-and-so at 15 pounds. And it's like, well, how long have you been doing it at 15 pounds for? Forever. So the key to building muscle mass, right, is those weights should get heavier. Things should get easier and then you should be able to challenge yourself. So you can do that through a DEXA test to look at your body composition. You can do that through a strength test of assessing key movements, or you could just assess like, no, week by week, month by month, I used to be able to lift this and now I can lift this. I, I never used to be able to do a, um, you know, a single leg step up and now I can. I couldn't hold a core, a plank for more than 20 seconds and now I can do a minute, right? Those are all different things to show that your body's getting stronger. What are some of the standards then in the muscle strength categories that you talked about in terms of pushing and pulling um, that you look for to indicate relative physical strength at a certain age, you know, you hear a lot mm. about pushing your body weight or pulling more than some multiple of your right. body weight. Totally. Those I don't know offhand, my exercise team um, would know them or at least be able to reference the charts, but they're super cool charts that show you what you should be lifting by at what age, like what would be normal for what, what age. And so, um, but again, remember those are all like averages in exercise science in the American population. So may not be like completely accurate, but um, it could be a place to start. But there are very cool, um, yeah, very cool charts that show for a pull-up, for a push-up, for a row, for a squat, for a deadlift, for all those movements, what would be the appropriate weight for age that you should be able to lift? And all the different percentiles, like 90th percentile and 80th percentile and so on, which is cool to look at too. That is. So I recently got a heart rate monitor because yeah. I've been reading some things about VO2 max training and heart rate training. Mm -hmm. And 
Yet I don't know really like what is my max heart rate? What is my VO2 max? So I'm kind of going off intuition, but at some right. point I need to get some evaluation. So it sounds like one is a DEXA scan for body composition. One is a VO2 max. Does that yes. VO2 max give you enough input to then start using a heart rate monitor? Or is there another set of tests to understand how a heart rate monitor can help? Nope. So at the company I work at now, um, we, we test that, right? So we do a VO2 max test, but there's many layers. So if you're, you know, and again, this is that moment where like you can do this all without all the testing and the data. But if you do go down the data point, you want to work with someone who knows what they're talking about. So it's kind of like, there's a little bit of two lanes there. Otherwise, boy, can you get caught up in incorrect stuff? So, um, if you do a VO2 max test or even what's called a sub max test, which means you don't have to push all the way to your max heart rate, um, you can get your zones from there. Um, but there's many things to know. It's not as simple as like more is better, right? So um, for example, um, I'm just thinking of a good example. Okay, so um, uh, we often work with couples. And so in this situation, um, the husband was very fit and the wife was not as fit. So they were coming to us, but with different goals, right? The woman was ready to get fitter and like really motivated to, to get fit. Um, she was about to go through, you know, perimenopause and menopause and really wanted to take advantage of this time in her life to make sure she was at her optimal health. And the man was already in a pretty good groove, but wanted to optimize everything. Like what can he do to be his best? Okay. So what kept happening was, was, um, they, and they're very competitive because they are. And so they were like battling it out in heart rate zones when they were going on walks together or runs together. Mm -hmm. But one has to remember, right. The woman was not as fit going into the situation. She's now killing it. But when we first started, she wasn't as fit. So when you're not fit and you do a, a, physical exertion, your heart rate's going to go up really high because it's hard. <laughs> so the husband, on the other hand, he was already pretty fit. So for him to get his heart rate up actually takes quite a bit of effort. Um, so he was like, why is she doing better than I am on a heart rate? Even though he was actually fitter than she was. But of course, it took them several weeks to ask us this question. And we were like, no, 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 no. You're moving things around. So your heart rate zones are really helpful. Um, there's also lactate testing, which shows your, your fitness and your adaption, which would be um, a blood draw at certain time points of that, um, of that VO2 test. Um, and then also remembering that heart rate zones only apply to aerobic exercise. They don't apply to strength training. Right. So when you're doing a strength training workout, the data of your heart rate zones or heart rate doesn't really matter. What's important is the weight that you're lifting and the exercises that you're doing. And so that's also like a great example of the personalization is people are like, got a heart rate monitor. I'm good to go. And it's like, okay, you're good to go on your aerobic workouts only. And when you're thinking about good exercise, um, it's all part of it, right? Strength training, aerobic capacity, and mobility. Those are all essential parts of a balanced exercise routine. And most people only do one or maybe two. Rarely do people commit to doing all three. It is, it is a challenge. I'm trying to it's put myself tough. in the aerobic category these days. I, I've been historically a, a strength training. Totally. It's a lot. Yeah. More you know, some movements come easier than others. So you don't want to do it, right? Like, you know, some people can run forever. Some people, the thought of running is like a form of torture. You know, some people hate lifting. It's so uncomfortable then. Some people feel completely empowered by it. Some people hate stretching and doing, you know, mobility moves or even doing like a yoga class or something like that to support mobility. Other people love it. So it, it you have to, and again, it goes back to that humility thing. You likely are doing something that's making you uncomfortable. <laughs> Yes. And it requires, <laughs> like you said, humility to be able to stretch outside of your comfort zone to do those. That's things. right. That's right. You're you may need to ask for help. Yeah. Right. You might need to ask for help. It may not be the perfect workout. Right. You know, because people get so used to like, you know, I wake up at this time. I do this thing. It's perfect. I feel great afterwards. But like you might do a strength training class or a, 
or a um, yoga class or a mobility session or a different form of cardio. Maybe you're always used to going hard, 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 and we're asking you to slow down a little bit um, so that at the end of the session, you don't always feel satisfied, right? You're like, oh, that was not, that was not as good as the feeling I get from this other one. And again, embracing that rather than fighting it is really helpful when thinking about how to put the whole balance together. And that goes to food and that goes to sleep, right? Like, um, not all healthy food is going to taste great. <laughs> you know, like it's just, it's just not, you know, like we've all been duped by the food system, right? So like when you put a, you know, a certain fried food or a certain sugary food on your tongue, your brain is hit as if you were on a drug, right? It's going to be really hard to get that sensation from a piece of lettuce, or like a lean protein. It's just not going to be the same. But it doesn't mean that those foods can't be looked at as this is providing me the, what I need for my health and my goals. And same with sleep, right? Like going to bed 15 minutes or 30 minutes earlier is uncomfortable, right? Even when you're tired, people want to, you know, look at their phones or watch TV or zone out or read longer or do whatever they want to do at night. Um, and often we're just asking people, go to bed 15 minutes earlier, like shut things down. And they're like, it's like a little kid, you know, like, it's like, I was angry just, about these going are the to bed conversations time. I have with my eight and 11. That's right. Friends. That's right. That's right. And so we have to do the same thing as adults of saying, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to do this yet. I have a goal of, um, you know, improving my heart health or, keeping my fitness up as I age or living till, you know, whatever year you want to live to or whatever your goal is. And all these different parts of sleep, nutrition, and exercise are essential to get you there. At what age do you typically find clients starting to think about that longevity? Um, you know, when they say, hmm, I actually now really care about how long I live and how do you help them through that thought process? Yeah, this is where like, uh, I'm like the least sexy dietitian, right? Because um, the majority of times that people feel, um, feel that is when things have gone really badly, right? Mm -hmm. They've had a heart attack, they've had a cancer scare, they've had an orthopedic surgery, um, mm -hmm. they're extremely overweight and starting to feel like pain that they've never felt before, you know, um, Definitely women going through peri and menopause just start to feel like everything is going insane on them and they don't know like who they are anymore, right? So most people catch things too late. And the truth is many of the things are reversible. So the too lateness doesn't always come. I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, things are too late, right? Like the, the damage in the joint or the damage in the organ it's too severe to be totally reversed. Although typically a lot of success can happen and a lot of change can happen. But again, remembering the mental part of things is really hard. And I deal with this with my clients all the time, right? They're just like all or nothing, power through, go, 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 go in their 20s, 30s, maybe even in their 40s. And then to have to teach like humility, the power of slowing down, the power of, um, like, like, you know, one of my clients, I said to him, um, the tortoise wins the race. Remember that. And he was like, the tortoise, how could you say that? Like, don't ever say that to me again, the tortoise, you know? And I was like, but it's true. He's like, Oh God, I don't want to be a tortoise. I want to be the hare, you know? So it's a really difficult mindset to change. Um, as you get older, plus if you have 50, 60 years of powering through and it working, kind of, <laughs> it's really a difficult thing to change. So mentally, the earlier you can build preventative health habits, the easier your life will be in the long run. Because when you're in your 50s, 60s, and 70s, likely you won't have as much pain and as many issues, as well as behavior change will be easier because you've already kind of gotten used to it. Um, but also one should be looking at things in their 30s, in their 40s, and not waiting till their 50s, 60s, and 70s when the um, the damage has already been done or is starting. Yeah. So I'm 42. I'm 42. Yeah, you're right there. 
this very recently. My father passed away at 52, albeit mm -hmm. from an unexpected uh, cancer that was always fatal. And, but he died in 10 years from my age now. So it started me thinking about these things, hopefully a little earlier than I otherwise would have. Maybe that'll give me a better opportunity to prepare. Um, right. So we'll see. But one question actually jumped out at me when you were saying that, which is, you know, I don't know what perimenopause is. I've heard of menopause. Right. What does that mean? So this is becoming a, a, thank goodness, a much more discussed topic. Um, because women's health is becoming a much more um, open and discussed um, open and discussed topic, which I am just grateful for. Um, so the definition of menopause is that a woman has gone twelve months in a row without a cycle. So there is no actual like I'm. You know, it's you're either you're either before that. And then you have that year of that situation, and then you're you're in menopause after that. And so, um, but what many people, women and men, right? Um, but women in particular don't realize is perimenopausal symptoms can happen um, in late 30s or even in definitely early 40s, and likely in your late 40s. The average age of menopause is 51. So women are going through quite an intense time these days, right? There is a lot of pressure. I mean, all humans are, but if I just stay in the women lane for a second, right, there is just a ton of um, physical and emotional demands that most women are dealing with on the daily, right? Between working with their family, as well as many of them are working in their career, as well as there is just social demands. And I mean, the feeling that women have that like they have to be able to do it all is um, at an all time high, right? They have to have, you know, they have to be mentally alert. They have to be physically attractive. They have to have a strong social uh, sex drive. They have to be able to make money. They have to be the perfect parent. They have to be the perfect spouse. They have to be the perfect friend. I mean, it's just a lot. And there is no way out of it, right? Hormones will decline, um, testosterone, progesterone, and estrogen in that perimenopause phase, right? Because the point is, is that um, you're not to procreate anymore, and those hormones aren't needed anymore, and they're all going to go down. There's no way out of that. <laughs> like, there's, some people have more symptoms than others, but those hormones will decline. That is just an absolute part of being a, uh, a woman. And so with that comes tons of symptoms. Um, sleep is impaired. Um, sex hormones are connected to cholesterol, which is connected to insulin, which is connected to thyroid, which is connected to stress. Those are all different um, hormone cycles in our system. And so when the sex hormones decline, all the other ones start to decline as well, or go out of whack. I shouldn't say they all decline, but they all go out of whack. And so women start experiencing all sorts of symptoms, right? They sleep declines, their cholesterol goes up, their thyroid can be impaired, their sex drive goes down, they start to gain weight, um, their hair and their skin and all other parts of their body start to dry. There's all these different things that happen. Their bone health starts to deteriorate. All these things happen. And while there is... Um, a lot more being done with regards to testing and hormone replacement therapy. And that's something that you should be talking or all women should talk about with their doctor or multiple doctors to learn more about. There's a ton that can be done in lifestyle. So strength training, number one, like the best thing a woman could do for themselves when they start getting into perimenopause to build that muscle mass up to help their whole hormonal structure. Um, Eating protein and eating clean is a great thing to do when you're going through this time because the added calories that could come from processed foods is not ideal. Um, alcohol really needs to be looked at, right? Because alcohol is not great for weight or any of those hormone structures. Um, so there's a bunch of different things that women can do. Sleep health and stress management is essential. Um, but there's so many things that women can do to take care of themselves. And hopefully it motivates you, right? Like let's take, for example, the woman who is um, been in great health, great fitness, great body weight in their twenties and thirties, right? Like preventative health isn't even on their radar because they've just been fine. 
doing what they've been doing. And then in their 40s, they start to experience the beginning of some of these symptoms. It's a great motivator for them to be like, whoa, 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 things are about to get out of control. I really want to check in with myself right now and make sure I'm doing all the things I can do to take care of myself. And so what kind of testing would you recommend for a woman at that age to understand if they are having some of those changes hormonally? That's like, you, you have no idea when you masked it, but that is like, seriously, a very controversial question. Um, so because there is so much that is um, starting and so many different opinions on it. So you can go to your doctor and get a blood test. Although some would say that blood test isn't um, totally accurate. Some would say blood test is completely accurate. So it really means working with the doctor to take, to make sure that your, um, you, your, you're learning and you're being a proactive patient and you're working with the doctor that is right for you. There are some non-FDA approved tests. So using saliva or using urine or other tests that can be very, very valuable, but traditional doctors might not totally recognize them. So it can get really complicated. However, the, the position statement that um, I love right now is that you look at your symptoms rather than testing. And so that goes back to the point around qualitative versus always relying on the quantitative. And both are important. It kind of depends on the, on the, how much science and how much is confirmed in that area that you're looking at, right? Like we talked about VO2 testing. VO2 testing has been around for decades, right? There is thousands and thousands and thousands of tests and so much information you can do from a VO2 test. Sex hormone testing is still in the works in many ways, and there's just more and more conversations being had about it. But if you look at your symptoms around sleep, um, weight, um, anxiety, depression, hair loss, uh, sex drive, muscle mass, there's all these different symptoms you can look at to see how severe your situation is and what can you do to change it. So I'd probably go more towards symptoms than any type of test. Okay. Definitely wasn't trying to step into the controversy fray there. Um, oh man, it is. <laughs> you don't need to know, but it is a whole thing. Okay. So earlier you talked a little bit about uh, restrictive diets. And so that made me think of some types of kind of fads and things. You mentioned some things like Atkins, which I remember also uh, oh, yeah. eating a lot of bacon and eggs when college <laughs> and you know there's carnivore diets and there's vegan and there's fasting and geez now there's things like ozempic that people are taking maybe could you talk a little bit about um the whole foods approach versus these others and like why you're an advocate of that and also of course it's just anecdotal but why do some people find benefit from a carnivore sure. diet or a vegan diet and they seem completely contradictory yet totally times they're both uh productive for a person right and it's confusing right when like someone's doing something sure. that someone might think is like bad for you but they're killing it you know you're like huh that's great so few things to know one is really ask yourself what is your goal that is so important when thinking about going on anything restrictive, right? So um, um, in many of the examples you're giving, it's uh, obviously um, uh, weight loss, but asking yourself, why are you doing what you're doing, right? Like, are you doing it to lose weight? Are you doing it to help your cholesterol? Are you doing it because you care about the environment? Are you doing it because you've got a really scary lab marker and you really want to do everything you can to take care of yourself? Because so many people go on these restrictive plans when they don't have a goal and they're only doing it because either their friend's doing it or an influencer told them to do it. And so when you ask them weeks, months later, like, why did you put yourself on that? It's like, oh, well, so-and-so said it was healthy, so I just did it. So first, check in with yourself and understand what your, your true goal is and why you're going to do what you're doing. And then make sure that it, it plays out, right? So. Um, for example, many of these diets seem to work because when you restrict processed foods or a ton of calories, you're going to lose weight and things will be better, 
right? So, you know, the gluten-free diet is a great example of that, right? So many people um, went gluten-free, even though they weren't even having any symptoms like digestive symptoms or inflammation symptoms or, or skin issues. Um, and they felt great afterwards, but it was, you know, they weren't eating the like cookies, muffins, crackers, pretzels, all the different processed white flour that's out there. So yeah, great. You know, like when, when, if, if a client is, is, um, feeling great because of that, is it because they needed to go gluten-free? Probably not. But if it's a way to get them to not eat all that processed white flour out there, I say, go get them, right? Now, if they then start getting into the, you know, gluten-free foods out there that maybe don't have processed white flour, but they have processed all other stuff, then they're basically just subbing one vice for another vice, right? And those people often stop feeling good. They're like, I was feeling great. And then I started adding all these gluten-free foods into my diet and then I don't feel good. Same with carnivore or Atkins from, you know, the, the late 90s, right? As much as I don't encourage eating no carbohydrates at all because fiber is so essential to health. Many of these individuals, when you like, for example, the bacon and eggs breakfast, which is such the cliche, right? So the bacon and eggs breakfast, while yes, that's quite a bit of saturated fat and protein and might be too high. It doesn't have the bread, the white bread, the hash browns and the pancakes and the syrup. So as much as it's not um, the ideal breakfast, maybe, it, at least you're avoiding a bunch of the processed flours and the processed sugars that so many people were eating. So many people achieved results of the Atkins diet, not because cutting out all carbs is necessary, but their total caloric intake went down. Which makes sense. How does a, how does a older diet work out? My puppy <laughs> just took a folder while we were talking and started eating that. Um, oh, goodness. Was trying to There's eat a reason mail. why my puppy's outside. There's a reason why my puppy's outside and not in my office right now. Yeah. Um, so like the carnivore diet or, you know, I don't totally love to put vegan in that category because um, many people are following the vegan diet for ethical reasons, mm. which if that's their belief, more power to them. They, 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 they you know, yeah, sure. But when you're following it because um, like the plant-based cravings, right? Those words plant-based is, is a funny one these days, right? Because again, they, they think meat's the problem, but then they're eating so many carbs and then they're also eating a lot of these processed plant-based foods and then they don't feel good, right? So they come to me and they say, I'm eating um, a vegan diet because I know it's good for me, but I'm more bloated than I've ever been. Yeah. And so my response would be like, well, what are you eating? And then when they tell me all the processed ingredients they're eating, my recommendation with them would be to, again, it, it goes back to the same thing I said at the very beginning, whole real foods and balanced plates. Um, the Ozempic craze, um, you know, it's hard to know what to believe because you just don't know exactly from the media perspective. But in my, you know, small sample of maybe 10 to 20 clients who are following, who are on it, um, they're achieving great results and I think reaping the benefits of the drug because my advice to them is to live your life as if you aren't on the drug and that you are trying to lose weight yourself. And so they're only losing a pound a week mm. and you're, they're titrating their medication to make sure that it isn't more than a pound a week. And they're only, they're extremely focused on strength training to build muscle mass and they're extremely focused on protein and whole real foods and not um, not eating the processed and the, the extra calories that come in. So again, if you are going on a restrictive plan without kind of coming into it with ownership that like your life still has to change, then it's probably not going to work out for the long term. It might work out for the immediate, right? Because all of those diets just, boom, drop your calories. So, I mean, you will achieve results in the short term if you significantly drop your calories. And you probably will feel better at the beginning just because your body's like, ooh, like I'm not feeling as heavy. I'm not taking in all those added unhealthy nutrients. I'm, I'm doing okay. But for the long term to keep it off, you know, as the billion-dollar weight loss industry would show, the, the people don't keep the weight off. Yeah, 
I think we're here so talking keep about the results going right. Long game, right? We're trying to play the long game here. Uh, yeah. Fair to call meat a plant-based diet because meat eats. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I like that. Um, I like that a lot, <laughs> actually. That's great. I'm going to go with that. That's, That's the first time I've heard that, but I'm totally going to take that. That's great. So you talked a lot about kind of checking in with yourself, you know, understanding how you're feeling, being more kind of connected with your own body and your own feelings first, just the data, although the data is important and informative in the right settings. How do you uh, kind of know when some of your clients are veering off course? And maybe it's also just checking you with yourself, but it seems like some of these things can work well for a while, or you have a certain dedication for a while, and then things stop. Like, how do you help clients in that regard? Yeah, it's really tough. Um, you know, the behavior, you know, I joke that, um, you know, nutrition is like a small percentage about food and so much about the um, psychological and mental game. Um, and um, when I suggesting that people check in with themselves, that opens up this whole field of what's called embodiment, right? Which is like actually being able to feel, physically feel the sensations from, you know, the, the neck down, right? Which many people don't really do, right? Most of us, because we're stressed, because we're too busy, because it's too uncomfortable, we kind of numb out to what's going on here, right? So gosh, I've had so many clients, like I just had a, the most interesting session with a new client last week where I was talking to him about um, checking in with himself around hunger. Like before going into a meal, ask yourself how hungry you are. And he said, what if I can't do that? And I said, well, I want to know why you can't do that. Like, as opposed to giving you tips on how to do that, I just want to check it. Why can't you stop and check in with yourself and feel your hunger? You know, because we just eat, eat, eat because everyone else is eating or the meal's delicious or the meal's expensive or we're at the most, you know, bougie restaurant. So we have to eat all the food. But what if you were hungry? What if you were full after a couple of bites? So it really, and I'm going on a bit of a tangent, right? But that's a cool part of Ozempic or some of those, those um, drugs that are, that are doing GLP-1s, right? They make you feel fuller faster. Okay. So if you learned it for the long term, again, if you're just doing it for a fad and a crash diet, you know, that, that's not what I'm referring to. But for the people who are like, ooh, I could eat just, you know, half my portion and I'm okay right now. Interesting. What are my hunger cues? Because you, the hope would be that after you go off the drug, you could keep some of those cues of how to really feel your hunger or not, right? So embodiment is really important. And um, continually asking yourself time and time again, right? We're humans, right? So we all want to go into our head all the time. So really pulling the energy down and checking in with yourself as much as you can. Um, but when people go off track, right? First of all, they stop communicating with me, right? So if they go MIA, oh, I typically off. know something is off, right? Um, we look at kind of the most important data point, right? So if it's their weight, what was your weight most recently? If it was your cholesterol, let's get a blood draw done and see what's going on with your cholesterol. If it was your aerobic fitness, let's you know do a VO2 or you know run a mile and see how you feel sort of thing. So you usually can fall back on that one most important data point to see how you're progressing or if you've fallen off. And if you have fallen off, which every single person is going to do, there is no one who is hundred percent compliant all the time. It's just, it's just, you know, the realities of um, imperfection in life. Ask yourself, okay, in that last situation that I just tried, you know, whether it was a month, six months, whatever, what was working and what wasn't, right? And that's another like really unsexy question that I asked that, you know, but it's important. It's like, so for the, um, you know, for the intermittent fasting, right? So say they started at a 12 hour fast. So that was, that was their step one was a 12 hour fast, just eating in a 12 hour window. And then they did okay with that. So then they pushed it to a eight hour eating window, okay? Then they pushed it to a four hour eating, eating window, just why not? 
go crazy, you know, push it. And you could ask them, well, at the 12 hour eating window, I was actually feeling good. I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My energy was good. Okay. At the eight hour window, some days it was good. Some days it was not blah, 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 you know, and you can go on. And then by the four hour window, I really wasn't feeling well. Like I didn't have the energy to work out. I was hungry all the time. I was hangry all the time. And um, I wasn't feeling as strong. Okay, well, stop doing the four-hour window and open it up to eight or open it up to 12. So it's amazing how often so much of what we are doing isn't making us feel good. <laughs> We're like gluttons for punishments. We do things that don't feel good and we keep them going. So pausing in those moments when things get off track and try to remember what worked and what didn't work so that you can go back to the moment of what worked and try to pick that back up. Do you have a framework for your clients as to what they should be checking in on, on uh, you know, whether it's a daily or weekly basis, if it's some type of like journaling or communication with you to track these things? Because I know my own personal experience, I, I've had a few times where I've, you know, crested and fallen in my commitment level to my fitness and right. for me, I used to hate weighing myself. I like, I, maybe I should say I didn't hate weighing myself. I didn't think it was an important data point. I thought, I don't want to worry about a number on a scale. I just want to know, do I feel good? Do I feel fit? Do I look good? And, uh, but every once in a while I would weigh myself. And then of those every once in a while that I weighed myself, sometimes I would step on the scale and be surprised and say, oh, that number is not what I expected to see. Which right. has led me to say, oh, maybe I should do it more frequently uh, because now I won't be as surprised as often, which I'm still wrestling with because I don't really like the idea personally of a scale, but right. like less the times when I've stepped on a scale and saw a number that was sure. vastly higher than I anticipated based on what I totally. looked like when I went to a pool. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Um so, so yeah, so there is this, it's like a weird kind of boundary where like on the one hand, you want to have a level of accountability and tracking that helps motivation, but doesn't lead to overwhelm, right? So the, so often the person who weighs themselves daily or is wearing all the wearables all the time and looking at all the data all the time, often is um, overwhelming themselves and kind of beating themselves up and it's not quite helping the situation. So, but some people, it's fine. So one thing is really knowing like what's the amount of data that's going to help you or it, data and check-ins, whether it's, you know, via a chat or an email or a phone call or a video call. Um, what's the level of like kind of data or feedback that you need to keep you on it without stressing you out. Because if it's stressing you out, it's not going to work. I'm like full stop. If it's stressing you out, you're just going to, I mean, I there are just so many people that the scale, the the sleep data, the heart rate data, you know, you just kind of you you're nothing is fun anymore. You're just like, you know, you wake up in the morning and you look at your sleep data and then you beat yourself up because you only got you know X minutes of deep sleep when you have no control over your deep sleep in the middle of the night. You know, it's, it's just going to happen. You can't make yourself deep sleep or REM. You know, it's just, that's just, it's out of your control. Um, and same with the weight thing, right? So weighing yourself, I think at some level of regularity, even if it's once a month is good just to keep an eye on things since Americans are typically gaining weight. <laughs> it's just, we live in a country where it's not in our favor to maintain or lose weight with our current kind of food and lifestyle. So I think checking with yourself at some level of regularity is good. But if it, again, if it's causing stress and angst, I'm, I'm not such a fan of it. Um, and then same with um, an expert. Some people, especially at the beginning, need quite a bit of help. So, you know, it may be that you need weekly calls with me or if you're working with a trainer or whoever it is, you know, like a weekly call, um, or maybe it's a monthly check-in, but then also being proactive enough to be like, I am still going to check in with Jay 
every three months so I don't get totally off the ball. And again, what we would look at is whatever is of most importance, right? So if the person is focused on weight and strength, right? I'm going to ask, what was your weight? And are you lifting heavier? And like, how much are you lifting, right? If the person's goal was around aerobic fitness or body composition, we might look at a DEXA scan and we might do a, um, a VO2 max to test, test depending on what the person's focus is on. Okay. If the person's focus is on sleep, right? We would look at sleep stats over, you know, the average of the last quarter or just qualitatively have someone check in. You mentioned journaling. Again, for some people that feels really good. And for some people, it's just too much or it's stressing them out or it's like another habit on top of a habit on top of a habit. So that's another major part of personalization is what is the um, way to motivate yourself? And it requires you to check in, you know, it requires some honesty of being like, I know I'm this type of person. I'm not that type of person. And then again, that concept of like, I'm okay with you being a little bit uncomfortable, but not too much that it's going to cause you to stop. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. And I've, I've lived that a little bit where I've wanted to do something because it seems like the right thing to do. And then I've tried it and it just hasn't worked. I can't journal very well. I've tried, really? I've said, oh, let's sit down in the morning and do it. And I sit and that blank sheet of paper looking at me just totally. feels very overwhelming. Right. While other people, it's like their most sacred part of the day, right? And they do it every day and it's like calming and groundful and inspiring and all the things. So if it's providing you with that, great. But if it's not, again, we already we all have so much going on. No need to add anything that's going to be stressful. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, the we're here talking about health and wellness and you have a deep expertise in this area. Is it right to term this concierge wellness or, or how would you think of the way somebody would get the support that you and people with your types of experience and expertise can provide? I guess, let's see, I'm thinking about that. I guess there's different differences between the word con um, concierge and personalized, right? And well, and I guess we should start earlier. When I think of wellness, I, I basically think of everything that's not part of the medical system, right? So if it's health and medical, that involves a doctor, that involves diagnosing, that involves medications, that involves all the different specialties that doctors have. And thank goodness we have them. And then when I think of wellness, I think of nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress recovery, um, all the different things that can fall into those categories, categories that doesn't involve a doctor. Okay. Um, so that's kind of, I'm sure people have many different definitions for the word wellness, but that's kind of my break in it is medical versus, you know, lifestyle. Um, and then when I think of concierge versus personalized concierge, I associate with um, money. <laughs> I associate with you are paying for super high level support of experts to help you with everything, whether it be assessment, programming, accountability, support, all those, you know, iterations, all the different stuff. So concierge, I would say I define from a um, paying for a team or for things. Personalized, anyone can do. Personalized is based on you checking in with yourself versus just doing what everyone else is saying to do. Right. Personalized yeah. is that, you know, just really honoring that, um, you know, you, like how you said, right? Like you needed, you need to eat breakfast, right? Even though there are so many 42 year old men right now who probably are in the same exact category as you and so many components of their life and fasting is their jam right? Like it is just, oh, they love it. It's great for them. They're thriving. It's wonderful. And you can say, that's great to all of you. I still need to have a breakfast every morning and eat in a 12 hour window rather than a eight. Yes. I have found that. <laughs> you're trying. Yeah. yeah. So personalization, I think can be done as long as you're checking in with yourself using either qualitative or quantitative or a mix of both for yourself. 
So everybody can personalize uh, with some dedication and the right attitude and humbleness. If you need support, you can find the support of a nutritionist, a trainer, et cetera, and that we, we can term concierge wellness for, for our purposes. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, the podcast here is the Legacy Podcast and thinking a lot about how do you achieve a legacy? How do you live long enough to actually have a legacy? How do you think about legacy and what do you want your legacy to be? Um, yeah, I was thinking about that. And, um, you know, my meditation teacher, she teaches us like in your last days that if you've, um, you know, if you've lived a, a beautiful life, you would ask yourself, like, have I fully shown up? Have I loved well? And have I been in service of others? And so when I think of legacy, I think of like feeling so confident in my, my last days that I can say yes to all of those things. Um, the one thing I would like layer into that just to clarity that fully showing up for others is also means fully showing up for myself. Loving others also means loving myself. And being in service to others, makes I also have to make sure that I've been in service to myself. So all of these things that we've been talking about this hour around checking in with my checking in with myself, embodiment, making sure I'm doing things for me and not for other people, making sure I'm taking care of myself in a way that feels genuinely good for me and not just because I think I'm supposed to do it. Those are all parts of um what I think is, you know, going to leave me in my last days of, of feeling so content and happy is that I was able to do that for myself, which allowed me to be able to be there for others along the way. Jay, what a beautiful answer. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I really enjoyed it. And me too. think of a, what a better ending than how you just summed up how you think about legacy. Thank you so right. much. Thank you.